Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose a noteworthy new book on some corner of the world of sports, and we interview the author. This week, we are looking at the history of baseball in East Asia. My guest is Andrew Morris, and we will be discussing his book, Colonial Project, National Game, A History of Baseball in Taiwan, published by the University of California Press. Baseball is a global game, a fact that most Americans, myself included, don't fully comprehend. The story of baseball in Taiwan offers a revealing case study of baseball's history outside the United States. As Andrew explains in the book and our interview, baseball in Taiwan represented the island's connections with Japan rather than with America. It was, after all, the Japanese who introduced baseball to the island at the end of the 19th century. And throughout the 20th century, down to today, Taiwanese players and fans have looked to Japan as the center of their baseball world. As described by Andrew, the history of baseball in Taiwan also offers an example of the importance of sports in the development of modern societies. Issues of ethnic relations, national identity, and modernization all play a part in the story of Taiwanese baseball. Even though Taiwan is a small and somewhat overlooked corner of East Asia, this is an interesting story and a chapter of baseball's global history that deserves to be heard. So let's turn to the interview. Our guest this week on New Books and Sports is Andrew Morris. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. I'll begin by asking you to describe a bit of your background. Um, Colonial Project National Game is your second book on the history of sports in China and East Asia. And you are part of a pretty select academic subfield that mixes sports history and East Asian studies. So how did you come to combine these two areas of interest? Um, It started pretty innocently, I would say, and also, uh, I would say, pretty ignorantly. Um, I was in Taiwan in 1991. Uh, and I was there, after graduating from college, I went to Taiwan for the first time to study Chinese. And I ended up living in the city of Taichung, which is in central Taiwan. And I ended up living, um, as it happened, pretty close to the municipal baseball stadium. And so I'd find myself at the baseball games or at the professional games. And I remember one time very, uh, again, innocently and kind of ignorantly thinking, this is great that these Taiwanese people play our game. They play my game, my American game. Um, and I went from that understanding of kind of triumphless understanding of baseball being spread around the world um, to over time to a much better understanding of how that game got there. And in fact, it had nothing to do with with American culture. Um, it had a lot to do with with Japanese culture. And so what I came to understand over time is how that game didn't feel American to Taiwanese people, but it felt very Japanese. And it was a really important um, artifact of Japanese colonialism. Um, and so as I started to understand the Japanese heritage of baseball in Taiwan, the Japanese flavor of, of baseball in Taiwan, um, I just started feeling like this was something that one could study. It just seemed to have so much packed into there, so much historical, interesting stuff about colonialism, about the KMT taking back Taiwan, about the Aborigines who were there in the center of the island and have such an important role in the game. It seemed too good to pass up. Um, but I, did, I wasn't always sure that one could really study something like that and actually publish a book on it with something like, with a place like University of California Press. 
Um, so it took me a while to really get to it, but um, over time I came to realize that I, I, I could do it. So I kind of challenged myself to see if I could um, dig into it enough to to make a real project out of it. So to begin, before we talk about baseball, we should set out the political background in 20th century Taiwan, uh, because as you said, the baseball history is closely connected to the political history, and it's probably best to structure our, our discussion of politics and baseball in two parts, so the, the pre-World War II period and then the post-war decades. So could you start by giving something of an overview of Taiwan's political history from the late 19th century, uh, so the time of, the beginning of, of Japanese colonization, up to the time of the Second World War? Okay. Um, so for more than 200 years, Taiwan was ruled by the Qing Dynasty, by the Manchu Qing Dynasty. Um, it was ruled as kind of a frontier province um, and it was given by the Manchus to Japan in 1895 at the end of the Sino-Japanese War. The Japanese had uh, had Taiwan for 50 years exactly and um, you can split that, that period of 50 years probably into about three, maybe three or four time periods. The first 20 years is really getting the place under control. There were all sorts of bandit rebellions for many years, Aborigine rebellions for many years. Um, by the ends of the teens, people in Japan felt like they had this place pretty well um, colonized and pretty well uh, pacified. Um, they were starting to, to make inroads into, into uh, civilizing the place and cutting uh, Chinese men's queues and getting rid of foot binding and those kinds of um, cultural things that the Japanese found very... Um, Backwards. There's a period after World War I um, where assimilation becomes really important. The Wilsonian ideals of self-determination really inspire people in Taiwan and Japan to change how this relationship is working. There's um, That would go into the 30s, you would probably say, a period of, of um, where, where the Japanese colonial government was really focused on assimilating Taiwanese people into these very superior um, Japanese modern cultural ways. And that's where baseball really comes in, and we'll get to. Um, a third period has to do, and I guess, uh, I guess we'll just call it three periods, uh, but the third period is the period of um, a more forcible kind of a transformation of Taiwanese into Japanese subjects, and the Kominka movement, which literally means just um, turning people into imperial subjects. And once, they go, once Japan goes to war with China in 1931, it becomes pretty clear that these Taiwanese people who are both Japanese subjects, but they're also pretty recently Chinese subjects and you know, ethnic Chinese and stuff. That's going to be a tricky group to um, to guarantee the loyalty of. So they want to make sure that they can um, turn these people into loyal Japanese subjects. And that's pretty much the, the third stage, I would call it, then, of, of Japanese colonialism. It goes from about 31 through the end of the war. And what did the social structure look like? So you talked about Aborigines and then also ethnic Han Chinese, correct? Yeah, so um, society kind of worked, I think, most simply you could probably call it as, as kind of a three-way kind of three um, system. And the Aborigines come in really handy here, and I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But you know, the Japanese as this occupying colonial power, the Han Chinese who had roots in the mainland, who had come to Taiwan over the last uh, couple hundred years, and then the Aborigines, who are technically the Austronesian peoples, and they're the first peoples of Taiwan. And by then, they were already a pretty small minority, something like they are today, about 2% of the population. But they served a really important role 
for the Japanese. The Japanese could always use this Aborigine group as a way of teaching the Chinese a lesson or vice versa. And so the, the fact that there were these three groups made for this interesting kind of pivot, and the Japanese could kind of pivot and talk about what the Aborigines were doing to become more civilized and critique the Chinese in that way and try to have a, have a, a valid way of, of, of critiquing Chinese who didn't want to get on with the Japanese culture. Or they could go the other way and kind of hold up examples of Chinese who had, who had learned Japanese who were integrating more into the, the empire and use that to criticize Aborigines who were resistant to that. So you say that uh, the Japanese at the beginning of the, of the colonial period bring baseball into Taiwan. And we should probably step back in that the Japanese, of course, adopt baseball from the Americans. And so uh, for some background, why was it that the Japanese were so attracted to baseball? Um, that's a great question. You know, I might have to pass that one on to my uh, colleagues in Japanese history. I think I have my own pet theory about it. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> and there's, there's an interesting moment, and in it comes in 1895, which is the same year that the Japanese take Taiwan. That's the year that they changed their they, they changed their name of the game of baseball. They they had been calling it baseball, and so baseball had been played in Japan since the 1860s. It was brought there by very earnest, you know, American teachers. Um, it had very quickly become part of Japanese culture. But in 1895, they give it a new name of yaku, and yaku can be translated a couple different ways with with some poetic license. Um, I translate it as either ball game in the open or ball game in the wild. So my, my pet theory about, about baseball then has to do with that, that notion then that baseball is this game um, that the pastoral element of baseball that comes from America when it gets to Japan in the, in the early, uh, I guess late Tokugawa, early Meiji period, it starts to take on a different meaning and it starts to resonate with ideas of of their dreams of colonialism and that kind of open space that serves one purpose in the American pastoral can serve a different kind of uh, purpose in Japanese dreams of open space and all that open space out there that their empire could fill in. And so Taiwan is their first colony. And so I think it's, it's, it's very significant that that same moment that they're taking Taiwan, they're also really re and really very honestly calling this game for what it seems to them, which is, this exercise in this openness. So there are all sorts of modern games that become really popular in in this period in Japan, late again, late 19th century, early 20th century, tennis, rugby. Uh, rugby is hugely popular in Japan at that time. But baseball has a different kind of resonance, I think, that, that carries on through today in Japan and this kind of um, and I think it has a resonance then to this colonial period as well. And again, I think it's unique for it's not having those kinds of boundaries that these other games have. So was it earnest teachers uh, <laughs> who brought baseball to Taiwan, earnest, earnest Japanese teachers? Who was it that brought the game to Taiwan? Uh, for the first 20 years or so, it's, or even more than 20 years, it's, uh, I don't know about, about any, I don't know about their earnestness, but it's uh, <laughs> Japanese bankers and teachers and um you know, colonial officials and businessmen and people like that, but they're not sharing it. Mm -hmm. They're playing it as a Japanese game. Mm -hmm. And they're really taking pride in it being a Japanese mm -hmm. game. And so later on in the 30s, you'll, you'll find these these recollections of, remember back in the good old days, remember back in the, in the 1900s and the 19-teens when we'd go out and we'd play baseball 
And the natives would look at us and they'd think we were weird and they wouldn't know what we were doing and they would be scared of the ball and they would they would be scared of the bat. Um, and so for actually almost half of the colonial period, it's kind of funny that I'm talking about this important um, period of the Japanese sharing baseball with Taiwan when almost fully half of the colonial period was a period of the not sharing baseball, yeah. of it being experienced as a, an exclusive um, culture. But again, after World War One and this, this whole um, rethinking then with Wilsonian ideas and assimilation, it makes it really, really important for them to be sharing baseball. And almost immediately you, you see documents that are saying things like, we should really have the Taiwanese playing sports with the Japanese, out there in the sunshine, getting exercise, being on the same teams with them. That's going to build the empire. Um, and then that change happens really fast. And we, I haven't, you know, there, there's, you get an inkling that the, the Taiwanese people had, had wanted to be playing this game. It looked pretty interesting to them. They weren't just scared of it because once it becomes open to them, they seem to really flood into this space and want to take part. Okay, so looking in the 1920s at this time that uh, the Japanese begin to share baseball with, with uh, the local Taiwanese, and then into the 30s, you have a mixed team, something of a symbolic team, from an agricultural and forestry school in southern Taiwan that has uh, ends up being quite successful in national tournaments. So how does this, this team affect the authorities' views on assimilation and ethnic questions? The school, uh, Kano, the, the school, again, you mentioned it was, used to be an agricultural and forestry school. Today it's actually a university. It's called Jiayi University. But they trace very, very clearly and very um, um, intentionally back to this moment in the 20s and 30s when, when they were a vocational school that had um, Japanese students, Aboriginal students, Chinese students. And they also had a real whiz-bang baseball coach. And so by this time in the late 20s, again, this is well into this period then when um, baseball was, was being seen as a way to civilize Taiwan and really integrate Chinese and Aborigine members of, of the population into Japanese culture. And this school was doing really poorly in the late 20s in the, turni- in the, uh, excuse me, in the island-wide, ter- island-wide tournaments that they were participating in. And... So the principal fired the coach, and he located a coach who happened to be teaching in another school across town. I think he was an algebra teacher um, who had played big-time college baseball in Japan. And he brought him in to build the baseball program at Kano. And he, over the next several years, he built a program that's truly legendary. And it, it really it lives on in baseball history today. It's really the central focus of, of the history of baseball in Taiwan. And I compare I would compare them to something like you know, it's kind of a mixture bet- between maybe Jesse Owens and the our you know nineteen eighty hockey Olympic team, or it's a really foundational, um, triumphant team, even though they only come in second place, as, as we'll get to. Um, but there's this, the interesting thing about this team is that they have um, in their starting nine there are three, I think it's three Japanese players. Um, two Chinese players and four Aborigine players. I think that's the right distribution. It's a very, you know, pretty even distribution between these Japanese, Aborigine, and Chinese players. And they don't affect the authorities' view of assimilation so much as really, really confirm it on a very wide stage uh, in 1931 when they make it to uh, the national tournament in, in Japan. 
So you talked about this new coach of the Cano team that that was brought in to to create this team that was a mixed team. And uh, I was struck this this was a, a familiar, to use the word trope, a familiar trope of sports narratives that you have a, uh, a mixed team, a racially mixed team that is forged by a rigid, tough, but fair coach and who then leads them to success. And so this is Remember the Titans set in, in 1930s Taiwan. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm kind of giggling as you say it because it just sounds so perfect as, as a Hollywood <laughs> script or something. Um, and so the way that we, th- the way that we remember it, it's, it's really complicated because there is the history that I'd like to talk more about. And then as we're talking about that, I would still, there's, there's also still this element of it, which is the way that people in Taiwan today treat that history and how they use that. Um, and we can get into that a little bit more later, but just the, the fact of how Taiwan so how many people in Taiwan for the last 20 years or so have used baseball as a way to express their real essential difference from those other Chinese people and how um, this, this team where, they, where Taiwanese people unified with Aborigines and Japanese people to go on to great, great things in the world of baseball really sets them apart from China where there is no real history of baseball. Um, but, but to get back to the actual history, so I mean, there, there are two different. Anytime we talk about this team, then there are a couple of different things going on. Uh, but if we talk about maybe at that time, the way that it was understood um, was again that there's this process of assimilation, and like I said, it didn't take long for him to turn this into a really good team. And he, he it's funny again the way that he's remembered. He's remembered as this really fair coach, and by fair, I think. What they're often what they're often describing is this guy who was just really, really a hard ass to and everyone, kind of racist to everybody, and he would criticize the Chinese players and use these racist terms. And he's, he would criticize the Aboriginal players and use these racist terms to kind of get at them. But whatever the case was, and, and there was violence that was used, and the upper classmen players were really encouraged to use violence against the the younger players. But what the Taiwanese people, what the Taiwanese players who are, who are living today will say about that is it wasn't racial. You know, it wasn't the Japanese players knocking around the Chinese players or boxing the ears of the Aboriginal players. It was just the older players with the younger players. It wasn't about race. It was just kind of, it was just kind of violent all around. <laughs> um, but anyway, so so again, I you can tell I'm not, I'd like to get past the romanticizing of this guy because I think what he was the way he went about this was kind of strange, at least to me. But um, anyway, the, the team became really good and became very successful in Taiwan. And what people started to notice was this um, multiracial composition of the team, which was still pretty unique at that level of baseball. Um, because the good high schools that the Kano was, was competing against um, would have very few Chinese player, players and never would never have any Aboriginal players. And it was only because this was a kind of marginal vocational school that they happened to have more Chinese players um, who could kind of make the cut and make these test score cuts and the same with the Aboriginal players. Um, so Kano, you know, caught the attention of a lot of people in the media, especially um, they stood out for being a, a mixed ethnic team. And again, many of the teams, most of the teams that were playing were almost exclusively Japanese. They might have one or two Chinese players in the real elite high schools that had the good baseball programs. And so Kano, it really fits that storybook 
narrative that you were talking about in another way as well. It's not just the ethnic, um, the tri-ethnic mixing, as they called it, but it's also also class-wise. It, um, this was a very marginal school. They didn't have their own field. <clears throat> there was a good high school in town that did have their own field, and the Kano team would have to go use the good high school's field, and um, they were kind of known as um, kind of ruffians around town, and you wouldn't really want your kids to go to that school. You'd prefer they could go to the, the, the troop, you know, the, the proper senior high school. But once this team starts doing so well <clears throat> in these tournaments, um, the media made a big deal of them, again, for that, that reason. They, they seemed to really confirm what the Japanese colonial enterprise was all about. It wasn't just about taking over Taiwan and taking all the camphor back to Japan. It was about making these people into imperial subjects. And, and spreading the traditional Japanese culture, but also the modern Japanese culture of, of empire and of, of nation <clears throat> to places like Taiwan and to these people like the Aborigines. And again, that, that real triumphalist um, way of understanding this is that if, if you could civilize these people, then you can civilize anyone. And I think the most interesting moment comes when that whole narrative is really threatened in 1930 by this, uh, this massive Aborigine attack on Japanese civilians. It's a, it's a huge incident in <clears throat> Taiwanese history in 1930 called the, the Wusha incident, or in Japanese, the Musha incident, when, when Atayal Aborigine braves killed about 160 um, Japanese subjects at a, at a track meet <clears throat> in October of, of 1930. And so that whole narrative then of, of, of civilizing the Aborigines and taking the most dangerous and the most wild people in, in all of Asia and turning them into peaceful, productive Japanese citizens was really endangered. And so that's why Kano's um, trip to Japan in 1931 is even that much more important in my mind. Um, this attack and this, this, this massacre in, happens in October 1930, it's only a few months later, in the summer of 1931, that Kano wins the, the Taiwan island-wide tournament and earns the right to play at Koshien. And Koshien is a real sacred part of Japanese culture. Uh, professional baseball is big in Japan, and college baseball is big in Japan. But high school baseball is it. High school baseball makes the world stop in, in, in every summer in Japan. And 600-and-something high school teams start the tournament and you get down to about 30 or so that make it to the Koshien tournament. And this is the kind of thing that you, you know, these players would tell their grandkids about. And so when, when Kano makes it to that tournament in 1931, it's a really important moment um, for, for people in Japan to be a little bit, uh, to start to, um, to feel better and to be relieved then, and to feel confirmed then that, that the colonial mission is working again. The, the, the attack in October 1930 really puts into doubt the whole colonial mission, the whole colonial enterprise. They've been there for 35 years. How come these people are still killing us? We thought we had turned them into Japanese subjects, and they're still <laughs> cutting our heads off. But a few, a few months later, when the Kano team gets there, it's really significant in the Japanese, in, in the media and in the public then, because it proves, like I said, what this uh, mission was all about, which was to turn these people into productive members of the Japanese community. And this team, um, they introduced them last. And so I think there were th maybe 30 or 31 teams that made it to Koshien that year. They saved Kano for last. 
and they come and they parade around the field and they get a standing ovation. And the media had been making a big deal about them coming for days and again using these same terms of the fierce and aggressive Kano team. And even though it's just a few of the players are Aboriginal, the other ones are Japanese and Chinese, um, but it's this really important symbolism then that this team represents that kind of cross-ethnic solidarity that, that we can build. And so this team ends up coming in second place, which I, I see as really the perfect ending. I don't think they really wanted these, this team with the Chinese and Aboriginal players to come in first place. I don't think they really wanted them to beat the best Japanese team. But if they could come in second place and give the best Japanese team a real run for their money and show that, again, the Chinese and the Aborigines had learned the Japanese ways of teamwork and modern Japanese culture, and they were almost as good as the Japanese, that was kind of the perfect ending. And so, again, like you were talking about this kind of storybook narrative, it really works out to be that. And so they really live on in Japanese history and Taiwanese history. And even today, Koshian will sometimes invite the Kano, the surviving Kano players to come back. And a couple of summers ago, I was talking to the head of the Kano Alumni Association. He accompanies these players back to Japan in the summer sometime. And when these old men are out on the streets of Osaka and they're, they're wearing their Kano hats, they'll be stopped on the streets and people will ask them if they can have had or have a picture with them because they, again, they they really confirmed at that really important time, at that really crucial time, that Japanese colonialism was working. It was worth it. It wasn't just this exercise in in futility um, that would just lead to violent reprisal. So in 1945, Japan is defeated in the war and loses its larger empire in Asia. And Taiwan comes under the authority of the recognized government of China, the Guomindang government led by Chiang Kai-shek. And even though baseball would presumably have had some association with the United States, the Guomindang's ally during the war, which then becomes Taiwan's protector after the communist takeover in mainland China, the Guomindang still has an issue with baseball, correct? Seeing it more as a, a remnant of Japanese colonial rule. Yeah, it was a, it was a really um, unique kind of a problem for them because like I said they were threatened by Japanese culture they went out of their way to suppress Japanese culture taking away Japanese flags of course with Japanese language records um, Japanese language newspapers were shut down after a year baseball was was a Japanese game it didn't have a lot to them it didn't have a lot of history in China there were teams here and there in China Canton had had a couple teams and Hunan province in China had a couple teams and um, northeast, the northeast of China had some teams, but that's of course because the northeast was occupied by the Japanese. Um, so, so baseball didn't have a long history in China, so it looked to them to be a pretty Japanese game. But it had something else which saved it, which was its value in terms of um, kind of creating a healthy, um, a healthy citizenry. And this was something that that government thought a lot about. They cared a lot about it. Um, since the late 20s, and since since they took over China in the late 20s, they had spent a lot of time, a lot of money, um, using modern sports and trying to spread modern sports and trying to spread this ideology of modern sports as a way to build a healthy China, a strong China, a productive citizenry, um, a citizenry that could work together as a team. And so they couldn't quite find it in themselves to suppress baseball. It, it, it kind of bugged them in certain ways, but it looked too much like what they had been trying to build in China as well. Um, so they, they did a few they did a few certain things with baseball, which was 
in Taiwan was to change some of the terminology. They hated the Japanese terminology, and they just tried to change the terms to more Mandarin Chinese terminology that would fit better this Chinese province. I don't think it worked very well because you can still hear people today using those Japanese terms today when they talk about baseball. But um, that was that was kind of the bargain that they made. Is baseball could live on, but it would have to become a more properly Chinese culture. And so they would have you know, Sun Yat-sen memorial tournaments, and they would have they would they would work baseball into patriotic Chinese events and events honoring other um, Chinese holidays. But it was allowed to. But it was a, it was a very rare example of this Japanese culture that's allowed to live on and really to um, to keep developing. So there's one figure in your book who would be recognizable to some American baseball fans, and that is the great home run hitter of Japanese baseball, Sadaharu Oh. So how does he figure into the history of Taiwanese baseball? Well, first, I think Sadaharu Oh should be recognizable to all yeah, American yeah. baseball fans. <laughs> That's just a little editorial statement. I think he has to be considered one of the best baseball players ever, ever to play. Um, but he has, besides that, he has a very interesting position in this history. A lot of people in... Taiwan, think of him as actually being Taiwanese, although he's not. And it's, it's very easy to find kind of uh, mis, mis citations or incorrect citations of him being a Taiwanese national. He's not that, but he is a Chinese national. And um, what I mean by that is that his father had moved from Zhejiang province in China, I think in the 20s, to Japan, married a Japanese woman. Um, and O oh was born... I want to say around 1940. Um, but because his dad was Chinese, he was not a Japanese citizen. And um, he found this out the hard way and found out the significance of that the hard way when his team <clears throat> qualified for Koshian for that national tournament I was talking about earlier. And he couldn't play. And you can imagine, you know, a teenage kid and kind of how, how heartbreaking that would be. Again, he's, of course, the best player on the team. He's a pitcher a great hitter, and they get to Koshi, and he can't play because he's not a Japanese national. And what he says is that he, he told himself at that moment, if I can't be a Japanese citizen, then I'm not going to be a Japanese citizen. And the way he tells it, at least, is that he really came to, he really started to embrace more his Chinese heritage at that point. But nevertheless, he was still a great baseball player, and he was drafted by the Giants and became this great star in the early 60s in Japan. And as he started leading the league in hitting and home runs and stuff, um, he was noticed by the government in Taiwan. And they very wisely uh, gave him an award one year, and it was the award for maybe the Outstanding Youth, Outstanding Overseas Chinese Youth Award. It really reached out to him. And so it started this series of visits that he made to Taiwan in the 1960s. It was both, on his end, it was both him kind of experiencing that Chinese heritage Again, and so the connection is that his dad was from China, but he was a, a citizen of the Republic of China, so that when that government moved to Taiwan, oh, kind of transferred his loyalties with that government to Taiwan. He was approached by the PRC government um, to go to China and to visit his father's homeland and you know, see the connection that way, but he always passed up those, on those invitations, and he identified with Taiwan and the government, not only his, not his father's homeland, but the government that had ruled his father's homeland. So in these series of visits in the 60s, um, there were a lot of interesting things that would happen where he would come back to Taiwan and he would try to kind of experiment with this Chinese part of his personality. 
or his 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 his, uh, his character or whatever. And the, the the ROC government would also make a big deal of what a great Chinese star this was triumphing in Japan. Now, the one problem, of course, was that he didn't speak any Chinese. He spoke mm-hmm. Japanese. Um, and he'd get back to Taiwan. He, well, one thing is they would always call this coming back to Taiwan. So when he went to Taiwan for the first time, they talked about him coming back to the motherland, which is just weird on all sorts of levels. Um, but he couldn't speak Chinese, so he was always apologizing for not being able to speak Chinese, and he would be speaking in Japanese. And so the mainland Chinese that had come to Taiwan with the ROC government um, thought of him as this great Chinese hero who was triumphing over Japanese discrimination. The Taiwanese people in Taiwan, that is to say that the Chinese ethnic people who had, whose families had been there for a couple hundred years, they seemed to like Sarhao largely because he couldn't speak Chinese, because he was Japanese. Um, and so they saw him as a fellow, kind of former former fellow Japanese subject who had triumphed over his Chinese heritage. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would give these hitting demonstrations, and they would, they would fill stadiums to watch him come out in street clothes and stand in this very beautiful trademark mm-hmm. uh, stance of his and hit. And he would explain this stance in Japanese and would be translated into Chinese, and the joke, of course, was on these translators because a lot of these people in the stands wouldn't need the translation. You know, they, they had been <laughs> Japanese subjects. They, they knew Japanese. Um, and he would always say, I'm going to work on my Chinese. And he never really seemed to work on his Chinese. <laughs> there was always this, this real great tension between his Chinese-ness, his Japanese-ness, and how different people in Taiwan really seemed to thrill in different, different elements of that. And then there's, there's also the fact that he was just the best player on the best team in Japan. And one year he even brought the whole team to Taichung to train. And that was just a real thrill for people in Taiwan to have the Giants, the Tokyo Giants, um, training there. It'd be like if you lived in Idaho Mm -hmm. to have the New York Yankees come train in Twin Falls or something. Mm -hmm. Um, The Tokyo Giants are training in Taichung, and so baseball fans are coming to to Taichung to watch them train, and they're filming them with their super video cameras. And these, these films were copied and they're circulated through Taiwan for years. Um, really a treasured moment. Again, but also reliving, you know, on one level, just kind of on a baseball fan level, but also reliving that Japanese connection. The Japanese have been gone by that time for 20-something years, but here they are again. Mm-hmm. And those unique connections aren't gone, even though the, the KMT tries to talk about this as a Chinese game or a Chinese island. We know this is still about us and the Japanese. And we know about World War II. We know what they did in China wasn't, wasn't right. But we're not ashamed of having been Japanese subjects. Or I'm not ashamed of my father having been a Japanese subject. And I still want to play that game the Japanese way, the way my dad did and his, his dad did. So I want to jump ahead to the 1970s and uh, talk about the Taiwanese Little League teams. And uh, and this is my picture of, of Taiwanese baseball because I remember watching the Little League World Series every summer on, on ABC Wired World of Sports and the Taiwanese would, would just crush the the entire field in the tournament. So year after year. And uh, how did this happen that, that Taiwan became a, a Little League power in the 1970s? It is quite a dynasty. You know, my favorite year, just to talk about crushing the opponents, was 1974 when they, they came to Williamsport and they won all three games by a combined score of 57 to nothing. 
all three games were no hitters. Um, you really can't dominate the, the opposition any more than that. And they did it in, I would say, two ways. <clears throat> the first way had to do with really, really, really focused training, really, really tough training. Um, you know, I say in there that it, it's almost certain that 12-year-old boys had never played baseball that well and probably never will again. Um, those, those Taiwanese boys that were coming in the 1970s and doing that probably played baseball better than any kids ever have or ever will again because they were trained so hard um, you know, all year long. It's, it's very common for these kids then to be taken out of school. And so I know, I know people who were part of that program. And it's amazing kind of how many people get left on the wayside, left, left by the wayside, mm-hmm. as, you, as they would put together these teams, um, train them really hard. And, uh, you know, I use the term child abuse mm-hmm. in there uh, to talk about what some of these workouts were like. Again, not, not suggesting anything sexual, of course, but just the amount of, of, of practice, you know, nine hours a day of practice, mm-hmm. uh, pitchers throwing 300 pitches a day, mm-hmm. 150 curveballs a day. You know, imagine, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing to think about uh, kids being put through that and you can imagine the number of them that didn't make it through that, but the ones who did make it through that uh, with this incredible team. The other part of that, of course, so one part of, the, of that success is the training. The other part is the cheating. Um, and the cheating came in a couple different ways, and I would divide that into two aspects, one intentional cheating and one kind of uh, inadvertent cheating. The intentional cheating had to do with how these teams were, were put together. And the teams that came over starting in 1969 uh, to Williamsport were actually national all-star teams, which totally went against the way that Little League baseball was supposed to be set up. And so the American teams and the German teams and the Mexican teams that they were destroying every summer were community Little League teams, and they were town teams. Mm-hmm. And there were, there were Little League rules about how each league had to you know, encompass a community this size and this many people. Pretty pretty you know, fair recommenda- you know, regulations for how this is supposed to work. And in Taiwan, they were scouring this island of, of you know, 12 million people, 14 million people for all-star teams and sending those teams to compete mm-hmm. with, with um, American teams or again, Mexican teams that were representing a town. Mm-hmm. So that was one kind of cheating. And the other kind of cheating was, was age cheating, but... This might sound kind of Pollyanna-ish on my part, but I think this was actually more inadvertent than it was intentional. Um, you always see these big kids. If you watch the Little League World Series, every team's got these kids that look like they're 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Taiwanese teams were no exception. They would have, you'd see these big-looking kids, or big kids on those teams. But their birth certificate said that they were 12 years old. It was just that their parents had reported their birth very late. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's kind of just a, a, maybe a, a trick or a, um, just a coincidence of, of the way things worked maybe in the in the 50s and late 50s, early 60s, Taiwan was still kind of new to ROC governance and this idea that when you're when you have a baby that you rush out and report it immediately, immediately to the government still I think probably seemed kind of foreign mm-hmm. and so especially in the south of Taiwan 
there were families that just would put that off for months, for years even, for reporting these births. And so you could have kids that would, that, whose birth certificates would say 12 years old, but who were actually 14. And my best guess is that they weren't actually trying to cheat that way. That was just the benefit of how things had worked in the 50s and early 60s in southern Taiwan where these teams were coming from. But the geographical cheating was very mm-hmm. intentional. Um, they were warned by Little League Baseball not to do that, and they would kind of hem and haw. And over time, they, they stopped doing that. And over, but over time, their teams um, became more mortal. Yeah, yeah. So, so this dynasty ran from, from 1969 into the early 80s. Yeah. And uh, as you talk about in the book, though, the one team that's, that's really remembered is the 1970 team that lost its first game and then went on to crush everybody in the consolation bracket. And uh, and you do make the point in the book that this run of Little League championships is not looked upon with with fondness or with pride as a, as a high moment in Taiwanese history. Yeah, that was something I, I started to see after a while looking at this. Um, again, they, they dominated that sport better, you know, more than you could probably dominate any other sport. Um, but when people think about it in Taiwan, it's often in terms of this kind of bitterness, this kind of guilt, this sense of what we did wrong. Um, and so, again, even though the, the players who played, uh, you know, played at this incredibly high level, and there's no reason to blame them or to belittle, belittle them or anything, but it seems like it's kind of hard still for people in Taiwan to enjoy mm-hmm. that that nostalgia. There's, there's this kind of um, regret that's attached to it. And it's also interesting that the most symbolic team, like you said, of that whole run was a team that didn't win. Um, and so I started to, to play with that and try to I tried to figure out what was going on with that team and why those memories of defeat and of the tears of, of defeat in this, this famous scene where the team comes back and they've placed fifth <clears throat> and they get back to the airport in Taipei and uh, Jiang Jingwu, who's the son of Chiang Kai-shek, meets them at the airport and it's raining very appropriately. And he's kind of comforting the kids. He's trying to make small talk with the kids, but the kids, they all look devastated and, and the coach is crying and the, the the, the, man, the kind of general manager of the team is crying and they're, they're trying to each take blame for this catastrophe of having come in fifth place at the Little League World Series. And so, um, so I, I found the work on, uh, by, Mark, by Michael Herzfeld okay. on cultural intimacy um, who talks about uh, something called, he calls the fellowship of the flawed and how he started to see <clears throat> in his research, he started to see these interesting examples of how societies and citizenries were actually drawn together most by memories of defeat, memories of shame, memories of kind of private embarrassment that that held them together where they they all knew each other's kind of worst secrets. And that held them together much more than a kind of triumphalism or or the boasting. And I thought that was um, I just I, I just felt like pursuing those ideas and it seemed really like a great insight on the part of Hirschfeld and it seemed to really also fit the way this worked in Taiwan. 
there was all this boasting that went on when they would win these tournaments every year and they'd come back and they'd have these great parades around Taiwan. But even after a few years, it seemed to get kind of old. It seemed to be kind of empty. And you'd, the, when you hear those players talk these days, they also seem not to, to find it all that fun. To it, what, what should have been incredible fun to go to you know, halfway around the world and prove yourself as the greatest team on earth of 12 year olds it seemed really unsatisfying because um, it happened all the time and because they all they all kind of knew the, te- the way the teams were put together they knew they were training more than they should have been they knew they were being taken out of school and they knew that the teams that were playing weren't like that mm-hmm. um, and so what seems to really um, bind people in Taiwan about that is kind of the shame. I mean, it's not totally that. There is still a lot of uh, nostalgia about watching these games. They would, they would come on about two in the morning. And it's not an exaggeration to say that most everybody in Taiwan was watching these games in the morning. It's almost impossible to find people, you know, of kind of my age or so that, that weren't watching these games at two in the morning, um, staying up all night and eating popcorn and eating um, instant noodles and fireworks and firecrackers after they won the game. Um, and so they have these these great memories, and so that part of it is is I think a shared kind of positive nostalgia. But there's always also this this very strong tinge of of, of regret and shame that I found very appropriate, mm-hmm. kind of poetic, um, and it seemed to also be going along with it seemed to also fit what was happening to Taiwan in terms of a, a national narrative. They had put together, you know, what they called Free China. It seemed to be a success story in so many ways, and yet they were losing ground diplomatically mm-hmm. to the PRC. Mm-hmm. And it probably didn't seem very fair. Again, say by the early seventies, the society was becoming more more democratic and more prosperous, and they were losing allies and they're losing their seat in the UN to to Mao <laughs> and this regime that was treating people that way mm-hmm. in China and this regime that had carried out these incredible mo- movements and you know, the cultural revolution was still going on. It must have seemed very, um, very unfair. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I, I think there was also this kind of, like I said, this kind of uh, poetic quality to um, the way that people, that this, the, the, the defeats and the shame seem to seem to be what live on in in memories of, of Little League Baseball. So we're almost out of time, and I want to ask a, a question about your final chapter, which deals with the uh, uh, the creation of, of professional baseball leagues in, in Taiwan in the 1990s. And, and there were two baseball leagues that were formed in Taiwan in the 1990s. And uh, unlike most... Histories of modern sports, where where it's typically a, a story of expansion that you have more money, more fans, better skilled players. You know, it's a story of a success. In in the last chapter of your history on Taiwanese baseball, it, it ends on a note of decline. So, um, could you explain that? And what are the causes of, of the decline of Taiwanese baseball? Yeah, um, it's something that's kind of frustrating as someone who who watched this, this league develop. And of course I came to really um, kind of root for them because I, 
when I went to Taiwan for the first time in 1991, it was only the second year of the Chinese Professional Baseball League. And so I saw it kind of developing, you know, as I was spending more time there and I was becoming more culturally fluent and stuff, starting to identify with with Taiwanese culture. And then to see what, all the things that happened in this league and how they really kind of destroyed themselves. Um, but I also very intentionally talk about it as a history of decline because no one in Taiwan wants to admit it. Mm-hmm. There's still this um, this narrative of success, of revival, how baseball is the national game, and that's going to carry us forward. Um, in Taiwan these days, people don't care about Little League Baseball. They don't care about their own baseball league. Mm-hmm. Uh, they watch Japanese baseball on TV all the time. They watch you know, American Major League Baseball on TV all the time. Um, and I think there, there are several reasons for that. Their, their league, the Chinese Professional Baseball League, started out really well. There was, um, they had some of these, these former Little League stars who were in the league and were still... They were getting kind of towards the end of their careers by the time of you know, maybe the early 90s or so, but it was good marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, there were good mascots, and there was a lot of attempt to really access that global part of baseball culture instead of just pretending this was Chinese culture but there was a lot of attempt there were a lot of attempts to access the Japanese element of, of baseball culture the American the Latin American and to pull them all together and to really rejoice in that um, the Taiwan Major League which is the second league even goes that one further and it really takes on Aborigine culture and makes that a real um, focal point of the league and they they design their uniforms in supposedly with you know, supposedly Aborigine designs and mm-hmm. colors, and the names of the teams use Aborigine terms and stuff. Um, so it's a really it's a really fun moment culturally. It's a lot of, of forethought that goes into it. Um, but there are all these game throwing scandals that really make it impossible to take the league seriously um, very much longer after that. Uh, the, the players in Taiwan were never paid that well. Um, and they found out pretty quickly that they could make a lot more money from local gangs um, who were just running uh, gambling um, uh, operations, and you could you could make a year's salary, years the equivalent of your of your year's salary in baseball by throwing a handful of games. Mm-hmm. So that obviously is going to kill a lot of enthusiasm in the project. And so what a lot of people were saying even by the late 90s was, um, why would I watch some kind of bogus game when I could just watch a much better product, American or Japanese, on TV? And you have the problem of so many Taiwanese players going to Japan, coming here to the U.S. And again, in the the early years of the the professional league in in Taiwan, that wasn't happening. The best team, the best players were, were mostly staying in Taiwan. But over time, more and more of them started to make their way to Japan, to the U.S. And that obviously hurt the quality of the league as well. Um, there was a lot of infighting between the two leagues that also um, just made the whole, it made the whole um, enterprise really unattractive to fans. In 2001, Taiwan hosted the World Cup of Baseball, which is not something that we hear a lot about here. But in other baseball-playing countries, it's actually a pretty big deal. And the government and the media talked about that as a time when we're going to prove that 
that baseball is Taiwan's game. We're going to prove to the world that we're a baseball country. And um, they really didn't. They, you know, there were a few moments when the Taiwan team played, and I think they came in third place and they beat Japan. And people were really proud. But for most of the games, the stands were almost empty. And there were weird kinds of signs in the stands, you know, making fun of of what happened uh, at 9-11, kind of jeering the American team with, with posters of Osama bin Laden. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't successful. But um, I, I use this term. Uh, the, the title of that last chapter is, I call it Manufacturing um, Content. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to make a pretty cheap joke there. Um, but what I saw was that they're trying to, they were trying to manufacture this ideology of baseball being the national game, and it's still really with us. It's still really relevant to our society. But it really proved the opposite. The people didn't care about about baseball necessarily. Mm-hmm. But what they do care about is the narrative of baseball being the national mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. There's much more um, enthusiasm for the ideology of baseball being the national game than there is for baseball. Mm-hmm. And again, people will watch the Yankees and they'll watch you know, the giant, you know, the Tokyo Giants mm-hmm. and stuff on TV, but there's just not that same um, enthusiasm for baseball that there was for the whole mm-hmm. 20th century. And so I find it really interesting that this moment of great democracy in Taiwan, um, of great transparency on the part of the government, of this great um, of globalization that people are finding that this game that represented so many of those things for so long doesn't seem to be that much much fun anymore. Mm-hmm. The baseball was more successful in a way when they had authoritarian governments mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that could stand for democracy mm-hmm. in the face of, of colonialism, or it could stand for some kind of ethnic unity in the face of mm-hmm. um, kind of enforced culturalization. And I haven't quite figured out that that contradiction, but it just seemed like, um, you know, as a historian, I'm not, I'm not trained in uh, how to analyze today. I think I'm better at analyzing maybe the '60s or the '70s or something. And mm-hmm. So I just try to leave that chapter with, with that as a question um, as to why, why this game seems to matter so much less now um, when Taiwan has realized so many of those, of those goals and ideals that the game actually stood for for so long. Yeah, and your disappointment, your personal disappointment, does come across in that that last chapter. And uh, and overall, I found the book uh, you really did a, a an excellent job in in showing these interconnections between uh, baseball, the sport, and these various political issues and these cultural issues that that uh, you've been talking about. So uh, I know that uh, I've taken a lot of your time, but I'll ask in closing: What are you working on now? Um. My next project has nothing to do with, with baseball, nothing to do with sports. Um, so I, I really enjoyed my two books on this topic, but I just felt like it was time to look at something else. And so I'm going to be in Taiwan this summer um, researching um, the history of uh, these pilots um, who defected to Taiwan from the PRC in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so um, with one, I have one book on China, one book on Taiwan, and what I... What I've kind of realized by writing these two books is that if you really want to understand China, you have to understand Taiwan and how Taiwan matters to China. Mm-hmm. 
if you really want to understand Taiwan, you really have to understand how China matters to Taiwan. Mm-hmm. And so I'm interested in in a project of seeing how these two come together. And during the Cold War, we usually think of, of, of again, the PRC and Taiwan as being kind of mutually exclusive. We don't see a lot of contact between the two. But there are these um, these hijackers that, that leave China for freedom and democracy in Taiwan, and their lives go in all sorts of very interesting directions by the time they get to Taiwan in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So I'm, I'm working on that project next. Okay. That sounds fascinating. For, for someone who has a, an interest in Chinese and East Asian history, that that sounds interesting to me. So, But uh, thanks a lot. I know that you need to go, so I appreciate you appearing on, on New Books and Sports, and uh, enjoy your trip to Taiwan later this summer. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun talking about this. You've been listening to an interview with Andrew Morris about his book, Colonial Project, National Game, A History of Baseball in Taiwan, published in 2010 by the University of California Press. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers more than 70 channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from military history to religious studies. If you like what you heard here, please visit the Facebook page for New Books and Sports, where you can give us your feedback, offer suggestions, and post links to your favorite thoughtful sports writing. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thank you for listening, and enjoy your week.